70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of Global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. My name is Bastian Würgenings. I come from Deutschland. Ich höre das deutschsprachige Programm von KBS World Radio für fünf Jahre. My name is Bastian Vergennings. I live in Germany and I've been tuning into KBS World Radio's German service for the past five years. It keeps me updated on news in Korea and was especially helpful when I was getting ready for my trip to Korea in 2022. Before KBS World Radio, Korea was just a country between Japan and North Korea to me. But as I tuned in, I became more and more curious about the country. When I visited Korea last year, I was finally able to see for myself everything I heard and read about on the radio and on the website. Now, KBS World Radio is definitely a part of my daily routine. Congratulations on your 70th anniversary. I hope you continue to air great programs for many decades to come. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It is Thursday, the 12th of January, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. Ahead of a summit between the United States and Japan, the two countries have stressed the importance of their relationship with South Korea in the face of North Korean threats. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. The UN administration has unveiled a controversial plan to compensate the victims of Japan's wartime forced labor through a third party. We'll discuss where this leaves Korea-Japan ties for our in-depth today. And coming up for Explore Korea, we discover the charms of some lesser-known local markets here in Seoul. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. The United States and Japan blasted North Korea's continued ballistic missile provocations, underlining the significance of their collaboration with South Korea. Our KBS World Radio News Editor Kui Jin joins us in the studio to brief us on their show of solidarity, as well as our other headlines of the day. Hui Jin, hello. Hello, Chang. So the two nations' foreign and defence chiefs held a joint press conference on Wednesday after their meeting in Washington. This comes ahead of a summit between the two countries as well. What can you tell us about their confab? Well, the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, uh, said that the U.S. and Japan are enhancing trilateral cooperation with South Korea to counter North Korea. The foreign and defense chiefs for the two sides held a meeting in Washington ahead of their uh, planned summit. Uh, let's listen to what Secretary Blinken had to say during an ensuing joint press conference. In the face of the DPRK's unlawful and reckless missile launches, including the launch of a long-range ballistic missile over Japan in October, we're deepening our trilateral cooperation with the Republic of Korea to deter and, if necessary, defend against aggression. That's a pledge the leaders of our three countries underscored in their November trilateral summit. 
today we held our first formal dialogue in this two plus two format on extended deterrence, namely to enhance the capability and credibility of our allied defense against a wide range of threats. Well, the aforementioned 2 plus 2 meeting comes on the heels of the Japanese government's announcement last month that it will double its national defence budget to 2% of the nation's gross domestic product over the next five years, a move that Blinken said Washington endorsed in the meeting. In announcing their plans to boost collaboration with Seoul, Blinken said Washington and Tokyo agree that China is the greatest shared strategic challenge that the two sides and their allies and partners face. The US State Department said last week that ways to enhance trilateral cooperation with Seoul and Tokyo will feature as a key topic at the summit Friday, especially in the face of growing threats from North Korea. And amid signs of thawing Seoul-Tokyo ties, Japanese media outlets reported last week that Tokyo was reviewing whether to invite South Korean President Yoon sung yeol to the Group of Seven summit scheduled for May in Hiroshima, Japan. And that invitation may well hinge on a resolution of a wartime forced labour compensation issue between Seoul and Tokyo, reportedly. Uh, South Korea on Thursday formally presented a possible plan to compensate the victims of Japan's wartime forced labour through a third party rather than wait for non-responsive Japanese companies. Can you elaborate? Well, So Min-jong, Director General of the Foreign Ministry's Bureau Handling Asia-Pacific Affairs, unveiled the plan on Thursday during a public debate held at the National Assembly on ways to resolve the compensation issue. She said that after reviewing uh, relevant laws, the government has concluded that it is possible and more practical for victims to uh, first receive compensation through a third party, through debt acquisition and other means. She was quick to add that this was only a proposal and that the government will personally personally meet with the victims and their bereaved families to verify whether they are willing to receive such compensation. The official noted that it would be difficult for victims to receive compensation from Mitsubishi Heavy Industries and other Japanese corporate defendants. The companies withdrew their assets and closed down operations in South Korea, fearing a forcible execution of a 2018 Supreme Court liquidation order ruling for compensation for the victims. Sof confirmed earlier media reports that the ministry believes it would be desirable to provide the compensation via the Foundation for Victims of Forced Mobilization by Imperial Japan under the Interior Ministry, rather than through a new foundation or fund, as it would save time and money. Japan has said it will closely communicate with the South Korean government to promptly resolve the pending issue of compensation for victims of uh, Japan's wartime forced labour, but it did not uh, give an immediate response to South Korea's proposal, I understand, Heejin. And not immediately. Well, Japan's chief uh, cabinet secretary, Hiroki, as Kazu Matsuno told reporters on Thursday that the two sides are continuing to communicate on that issue in accordance with the agreement with the leaders of the two countries uh, to seek a prompt resolution during their summit in November last year. The chief secretary did not, however, mention Japan's response or measures pertaining to a proposed solution. Uh, victim groups and oppositions, however, uh, parties, have voiced strong opposition to the plan. 
Uh, Japan has maintained its claim that all reparation issues surrounding its colonial occupation of the Korean Peninsula were settled under a 1965 treaty that normalized relations between the two countries. Meanwhile, 10 members of the Korea-Japan Parliamentarians Union have departed for Japan on Thursday. What can you tell us about their schedule? Well, five uh, lawmakers, each from the ruling People Power Party and the main opposition Democratic Party, are taking part in the three-day t- trip. Uh, on the first day, the three, uh, sorry, the ten lawmakers will attend a welcoming dinner hosted by the Korean Residents Union in Japan, or Mindan. Uh, on the second day, the legislators will hold a meeting with members of the Korea-Japan uh, uh, Parliamentarians Union and meet Japan's chief cabinet secretary, uh, Hiroko. The lawmakers will likely discuss with their Japanese counterparts on ways to address the issue of uh, compensating victims um, and attend a public debate uh, that is set to be held on on this uh, compensation issue on Thursday at the National Assembly in Seoul. Jointly hosted by the Foreign Ministry and the ruling party's interim leader, Chong Jin-sung, the debate was arranged to seek a uh, reasonable solution to the long-standing issue. Yes, we'll get further reaction to the government's proposal to compensate the victims and the ramifications it could have for Seoul-Tokyo relations in our in-depth news analysis segment coming up after this news briefing. In the meantime, let's turn to some other headlines now. The main opposition Democratic Party chairman, Lee Jae-myung, has stressed the need to normalise what he called unilateral and violent state affairs. Can you tell us more? Well, uh, he made the call on Thursday during his New Year's press conference as he urged President Yoon Song yeol to stop what he termed schemes to annihilate the opposition. The DP chief said the Yoon government is intent on destroying the opposition camp and political enemies by mobilising powerful agencies while stating he supports political cooperation only in words. He accused the government uh, for its two-faced behaviour. Recalling his repeated proposals for talks with the president, he noted censure against this government for being the only one in history to refuse to hold talks with the head of the main opposition party for more than eight months. He went on to propose a 30 trillion won emergency plan to help overcome crises in people's livelihoods and the nation's economy. He also reiterated the need to change the current power structure through a constitutional revision, allowing the president to seek re-election once after serving a four-year term. The South Korean presidency is currently limited to a single five-year term. Meanwhile, the fugitive former chairman of Sangbangul Group, Kim Sung-tae, who was arrested at a golf club on Tuesday in Thailand, is set to return to Korea as early as Friday or Saturday. He's suspected to be involved in a series of corruption cases involving ones that are suspected to have links with Lee Jae-myung as well. Uh, he was initially expected to resist returning to Korea, but it seems circumstances have changed, Hee-jin. 
well, according to legal circles and uh, the business group, Kim said initially uh, he had denied uh, allegations that he had been staying in Thailand legally and sought to avoid deportation through a lawsuit. However, on Thursday, he retracted his initial request and told authorities that he tends to uh, return to South Korea voluntarily. A Sangbangul official uh, said that Kim apparently deemed it uh, deemed that a lawsuit in Thailand would be of no practical use. Now, Kim's passport has, is now invalid due to an Interpol red notice. The company official said that if an emergency passport is issued, he will likely board a flight on on Friday and return that day or Saturday. Now, Kim is facing a number of corruption charges in South Korea, including including embezzlement, payment of Democratic Party chief Lee Jae-myung's legal fees by proxy and the transfer of cash remittance to North Korea. We'll wrap it up there for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. Earlier today, Thursday, the South Korean government held a public debate to discuss ways to resolve the issue of compensating victims of Japan's wartime forced labour. During the debate, the government formally announced its plan to provide compensation for the victims through a third party, the Foundation for Victims of Forced Mobilisation by Imperial Japan, rather than directly through Japanese firms, which was ordered by South Korea's Supreme Court in 2018. However, a group representing the victims have already expressed their opposition to this plan. To talk more about this proposal and how it will affect relations between Seoul and Tokyo, we're joined on the line now by two guests. First, we have Imun Jung, an associate professor of the Division of International Studies at Gwangju National University. Professor Im, hello and welcome back to the show. Hello. We also have Brad Glosserman in Japan on the line as well. He is the Deputy Director and Visiting Professor at the Centre for Rulemaking Strategies at Tama University. Professor Glosserman, hello to you too, and thank you for connecting with us. It's always a pleasure to be here, and a belated Happy New Year to all you and all your listeners. Okay, just to refresh our listeners, the recent tensions date back to the Korean support Supreme Court ruling in 2018, which ordered Japanese corporations such as Mitsubishi Heavy Industries or Nippon Steel to pay 100 million won each to Korean forced labour victims. This led to Tokyo to impose certain trade restrictions on Korea the next year in an apparent retaliatory move. And Korea also responded with its own retaliatory measures. And tensions have been deeply strained since then. The Union administration has made moves to defuse the situation since President Yoon took office last May. And this public debate today was one such effort to seek a solution to the issue. This is where the government made their proposal, which we covered earlier on the show today. Professor Im, first off, what's your take on the government's proposal? Uh, well, um, actually, I watched fully the, the debate. Uh, you know, it lasted almost more than actually two hours. But to be very honest, actually, um, it was very, um, very painful to watch because 
um, because both sides, again, the victim side and the government side, you know, I, I, I could um, I was able to feel, um, you know, the, the one side, of course, the victim side. Um, they're unhappy, dissatisfied with the government's proposal, which is pretty much understandable uh, because, you know, the government's proposal um, didn't include, for example, the Japanese corporation's formal apology or the, the Japanese corporation's um, financial um, commitment. So definitely it cannot be satisfactory to the victims, um, um, So, which is very much understandable. But at the same time, um, I was, again, very um, sympathetic with the MUFA's position, too, um, because, you know, of course, this is a historical issue, political issue, uh, but at the same time, it involves the legal decision, so which is very much difficult to resolve diplomatically. Um, and the MUFA uh, probably um, have thought so <laughs> many times and very deeply and they probably realized the reality again the the japanese uh, government as long as their uh, position doesn't change or um, the japanese cooperations their positions doesn't change either you know probably the korean government could not but uh, suggest you know this kind of uh, proposal so which is understandable too so that is why uh, it was pretty much um, difficult again for me um, to watch the Whole, um, whole session. Hmm. How significant was it that uh, the victims have opposed the proposal? And also, opposition parties have also opposed uh, uh, the debate as well. Uh, the debate was meant to be held with the Japan Korea Parliamentarians Union. However, the only member of the group that was present was the uh, ruling party. Uh, Interim leader Chang Jin Sak, lawmakers from the opposition parties, uh, criticized the foreign ministry and Chang for using the union's name as co host, saying that the decision was uh, made without their consent and the forced uh, labor victims themselves, a support group for the victims and a legal team representing uh, them, uh, refused to participate in the debate, saying that the government is holding the event after already making its decision on a solution. Mm hmm. So, yeah, um, again, well, um, th these days, I mean, not only this issue in Korea, uh, probably anything, any issue uh, can be very volatile and overly sometimes, uh, or many times, overly uh, politicized. Um, because, again, uh, if we recall the, uh, the result of the presidential election last, last year, you know, as we all know, the margin was thinnest ever uh, in the history of the Korean um, politics. And uh, the opposition party is still holds the majority in the National Assembly. Um, so with this kind of, again, the uh, structure, um, any issue can be, um, can be overly um, politicized. Um, yeah, so this specific issue uh, might not be really the only uh, case in which the two opposition, uh, two um, two parties are conflicting. Uh, but um, again, the, the the opposition parties that kind of criticism. I was a little um, disappointed uh, with the uh, you know that kind of reactions because. 
um, even though the proposal cannot be the uh, cannot be satisfactory uh, to the people who criticize or um, who support the victims' voices, uh, but still I uh, wanted to see uh, the more like a kind of inclusive, more comprehensive discussion uh, among the many different uh, parties. So um, I was a little yeah I'm disappointed with the uh, um, with their um, their absence. Uh, Professor Glossman, what have you made of the proposal and what do you think uh, uh, has been the reaction from Japan? How do you think Japan will respond? Well, I think I unfortunately always have to to report, I think the Japanese reaction will be one of skepticism and an unwillingness to make any sort of firm commitments. I think that, you know, as as Professor Im has has described, and I think as, as those who watched the debate saw you know, what you saw was very much an indication of the goodwill of this particular government and of its readiness and its, its, its desire to do, as it said during the campaign and since then, to try to move forward with this relationship and to try to overcome this very, very sticky problem. But I think that precisely the divisions, the politicking, the theatrics that were just described speaks to the intense divisions within the Korean society itself, within the political world as well, and the concern that the Japanese have that any decision that's any affirmative action at this point would only be temporary. And so, you know, that as soon as the Yoon government is gone, that you'll see once again a pendulum swing and an undoing of whatever progress is made by this this, uh, effort and whatever happens between now and, and the next election. So the skepticism and the concern and the, the, I think the, you know, the deep and abiding fear that this would, any positive moves would only be temporary, uh, it, it really would dominate Japanese thinking. Right. Perhaps there uh, is a risk uh, that this deal could fall, see the fate of the controversial 2015 uh, Comfort Women deal, where the Park and Mayor administration at the time reached uh, with Japan, uh, considered a landmark deal at the time to resolve the issue of a. Uh, Japanese military sexual enslavement of Korean women during wartime. Uh, back then, a foundation was set up in South Korea uh, under the agreement to compensate the victims. But it, again, uh, because uh, it was largely rejected by the victims themselves, the deal was uh, eventually uh, essentially dissolved on the, the Moon Jae-in administration. Uh, Professor Im, is there a risk that uh, something like that could happen uh, with this deal, seeing as they don't have... Uh, the support of the victims themselves? Well, I think uh, of this government um, already um, knows, of course, the, the past, what happened I mean, the, with the Comfort Women, uh, that agreement. I think uh, we definitely, the whole society, we really um, need to learn uh, from the, those you know, bitter lessons of the Comfort Women agreement. Um, again, the, you know, it was more between the two ministries um, to ministers, more specifically speaking, uh, rather than uh, um, you know um, uh, being a, a really comprehensive one um, um, that includes again the victims' voices um, or the protocol too. You know, it was just done by the two ministers. Um, so the scene itself, um, it was not that probably 
touching or that persuasive uh, to the uh, uh, general public in this society either. Um, so I think with this government, as long as we uh, watch it, the uh, kind of you know uh, kind of semi semi failure um, of the uh, um, of that um, um, come for women agreement, uh, I think this government should uh, should uh, repeat um, making some efforts again to, to persuade the victims, even though. Uh, at the end of the day, not all of them probably um, will agree with the government's um, suggestion, but still uh, those kind of efforts are necessary, I think. Uh, meanwhile, 10 members of the Korea-Japan... May I just, just to, 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 to weigh in on two factors on that? I, I appreciate your, you want to move on, but I would just note that while Professor M is correct, that this is a... Um, you know, it was a deal but between the two foreign ministers. One of those foreign ministers is today the Japanese prime minister. So that certainly, I think, provides a little context. And, and just while she's absolutely right about the, um, you know, the, the, the parameters and what's happened, I would just be careful that, you know, as always, and, and I know this is very t- difficult terrain, but the degree to which we let the perfect be the enemy of the good and the degrees that there be some compromises that try to move this forward and get – make progress on what is a really, really painful issue and try to find some sort of solace and some sort of uh, uh, solution that uh, it may not address every single concern, but certainly addresses the most, more of them, and, and moves us forward than, you know, that moves us, bends us, if you will, towards justice in the arc of history. Meanwhile, 10 members of the Korea-Japan Parliamentarians Union departed for Japan today as well. Five lawmakers from each of the ruling People Power Party and the main opposition Democratic Party are taking part in this uh, three-day trip. The lawmakers are expected to exchange views with their Japanese counterparts on ways to address this issue of compensating victims of Japan's wartime forced labour during their stay. Professor Im, what do you expect from this trip? Well, we'll see um, because you know. Um, well, the the, the uh, Mr. Chong Jin Sog, um, who is of course the uh, the leader of the uh, those you know parliaments um, union, um, and then uh, he's a, a kind of well known. Uh, how would you say, politician uh, who has been more like a communicative or supportive um, um, with the Japan. So as long as his uh, personal relations with the Japanese counterpart is good, um, his uh, probably dialogue, conversation with the Japanese um, uh, counterparts can be, I think, very frank and um, candid um, to to share uh, the difficulties of um, if, um, of the government um, the, the faces or the whole society's concerns. I think he, he can be again very frank uh, with the uh, with the, his counterparts. Uh, but at the same time, um, I don't know because Japanese position um, their um, um, stance about this specific issue has been pretty much consistently um, firm. So it's really probably, um, it might not be that uh, likely to find a a very different solution, um, which can be much more um, persuasive to the victim. So that's actually, um, yeah, kind of, you Mm. know, probably limitations um, we face these days. Mm 
Now, this issue uh, has been a key sticking point between the two countries at a time where North Korea has been stepping up provocations and the US is trying to improve cooperation with both South Korea and Japan in the face of that threat. In fact, US President Joe Biden is set to hold a bilateral summit with Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida in Washington on Friday. And the State Department says Biden will seek to strengthen the three-way coordination with both Seoul and Tokyo to deal with North Korea and other key issues in the region. Uh, Professor Glossman, how do you think the forced labour compensation issue will affect uh, the trilateral cooperation between South Korea, Japan and the US? How much of an obstacle could it be? I don't think it's going to be much of one. I know that's that's somewhat shocking to say, but I think that the American president will acknowledge the importance of the historical issues, but suggest, no, but will argue forcefully, not suggest, that in fact there are more pressing concerns, immediate concerns that need to be addressed and cannot afford to be blocked by these historical issues. And I think that, you know, for example, you're going to see the same sort of uh, attention with the parliamentarians' visit. I think that, that what you're going to hear is a conversation, as, as Professor Im said, you're going to have the, um, the, the South Korean parliamentarians trying to explain the agreement, the Japanese listening, making no comments, and then probably what the Japanese side will be most interested in discussing are the new national security documents precisely to explain what's going on with the uh, uh, the publication of the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, and the way in which it prepares Japan to work more efficiently with Japan with with the United States and with South Korea to pr- to address these challenges. And Professor Im, would you agree that that it might not be a much of an obstacle for the cooperation between the three nations? Yes, I agree with uh, Professor Grossman's that observation. Um, um, in addition to the Professor Grossman's that comment, um, again, the, uh, during the Moon Jae-in administration, um, those, those years, um, you know, Japan's um, position was pretty much more, how would you say, tough, tougher, uh, tougher to the Korean government, and and um, you know, the so-called two-track approach uh, was uh, very um, difficult. But these days, again, of course, we still are arguing um, between one another. Uh, about the uh, this, uh, historical disputes, but at the same time, um, you know, the, the tourism, um, the, 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 the number of number of um, people go just back and forth between Korea and Japan. And uh, uh, those economic uh, cooperation um, also resumed, uh, more restored, or even military cooperation too, um, as discussed these days. Um, having had the, um, you know, um, extraordinary level of North Korean provocations, so um, we do have much more serious realities these days. So as long as um, you know the two countries um, have a, a common interest. In, in dealing with those, you know, reality. I think uh, um, historical issues, of course, important. Uh, it's a long way to go, uh, but I don't think that they're gonna uh, they're gonna be really shaking the trilateral cooperation. Uh, looking ahead as well, there's also this uh, Group of Seven summit scheduled in uh, Hiroshima, Japan in May. The Japanese daily Yomiuri Shimbun said last week that the Japanese government is reviewing whether to invite South Korea and President Yoon Sung-yeol as a guest nation uh, to the event or not. The daily cautiously speculated that the issue of wartime forced labour compensation may be key to a final decision 
on that matter. Uh, considering the latest developments today, Professor Glossman, how optimistic are you that Japan will extend an invitation for President Yun to attend the G7 summit? Do you think the uh, forced labour compensation issue will be a key factor in that decision? Um, I don't think it should. I, I, I guess I have to distinguish between what I think should be in the case. I think in this in this instance, the Japanese should do precisely what they're urging the South Korean government to do, which is to look ahead. And in that case, it shouldn't let this particular dispute obscure the more important grounds to include South Korea in these very, very, I think, useful conversations. Uh, and uh, I would hope that the United States would be continuing to press Japan to do so, and the Japanese government would see that it would look hypocritical if it allows, in fact, historical issues to interfere with future-oriented progress. And it lets that, you know, that becomes an obstruction the way that it has urged the South Korean government to move forward. So I would hope. And I actually, I think I anticipate that South Korea will be invited. Professor Im, do you think South Korea will be invited? How significant would it be if they were not invited? Uh, well, I, I think it's going to be pretty likely uh, because as far as I understand, uh, these days the Japan... Um, Again, the Japan is the only Asian member uh, of the G7, uh, and definitely Japanese um, government, even though they are trying to um, cooperate more deeply with the U.S., again, it's military um, ally, uh, but at the same time, they don't want to um, turn the China, for example, um, um, back as a kind of enemy of Japan. So as long as Japan has a um, complicating interest in in Asia, um, I think uh, Japan will be um, and uh, will be trying to trying to make a, um, a pretty good relationship with the other Asian countries as well. So Korea is definitely one of the um, key member, key Asian countries. They need to cooperate, or India, um, or even even uh, some other ASEAN countries, uh, they might be uh, considering, I think, um, to, to for, for um, extending to extend the invitation. Well, we will see if that invitation does come, and we also mm -hmm. wait to see how all the relevant parties respond to the plan that was announced by Seoul today. Uh, we'll leave it there. We've been speaking to Professor Im Min-jung from Gongju National University and Professor Brad Glossman from the Centre for Rulemaking Strategies at Tama University. Thank you both for your thoughts today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Pleasure to be with you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 5.57 points, or 0.24% on Thursday, closing the day at 2,365.10. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ also rose, gaining 1.05 points, or 0.15%, to close the day at 710.82. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 0.41 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,245.81. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segment rounding up some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have Diane Yu joining us in the studio to bring us those stories. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Good to see you, Jango. 
Okay, we are diving straight into these stories today. Mm-hmm. So, Diane, what do you have for us first? So, the verdict is out. Yang Jino, the former chairman of Korea Future Technology, has been sentenced by a court for distributing a large amount of pornography through an online cloud service. Earlier today, the Suwon District Court sentenced Yang to five years in prison on charges of the illegal distribution of pornography and embezzlement. The prosecution brought the former chairman Yang to trial, claiming that he had aided in the spread of 3.88 million pornographic files through an online file sharing company and made a large profit out of it. Uh, The court also ordered Yang to attend 40 hours of mandatory sexual violence treatment, the disclosure of his personal information to the public, and a seven-year employment restriction at children and youth-related institutions. Right, so Yang, he's a notorious figure who actually first came to be known to the wider public after footage of him physically abusing his staff emerged. Right. That was back in 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, many other incidents of abuse emerged as well, including making employees shoot live chickens with a bow and arrow mm-hmm. and then decapitating them. Right. From these reports emerged these other crimes as well, involving profiting from illegally hosted pornographic material, as you said. And Mm -hmm. it's these crimes that the court made its ruling today. Right. What did the court say when they were announcing the decision then? The court judged that Yang was involved in the operation as a de facto manager of the online file sharing platform. The court pointed out that the platform allowed members to share large amounts of pornography without any guilt and infringed on the copyright of the others. It went on to explain that the reasons for the five-year sentence were a large amount of pornography that was in circulation caused social damage and the fact that he used the platform as his personal safe, accumulating huge wealth. And this comes on top of a string of sentences he has received involving some of the incidents I mentioned earlier, right? That's right. Yang was also indicted in December 2018 on charges of habitual assault, violation of the Narcotics Control Act, and violation of the Animal Protection Act. Other charges include violation of the Act on Safety Management of Guns, Swords, and Explosives. The case was upheld by the Supreme Court in April 2021 with a sentence of five years in prison. In addition, Yang is looking at two years in prison for dereliction of duty under the Special Police Act. The case is awaiting the Supreme Court's decision. If the verdicts of all the sentences stand, Yang will serve a total of 12 years in prison. Right, so it looks like his time in prison will be a lengthy one, considering mm-hmm. all of these charges. Right. Okay, let's move on to our second story for today. What else has been trending? The Incheon Yeonsu police station announced on Monday that it had booked a man in his 20s without detention for entering a stranger's vehicle that had a three-year-old child sitting alone inside. He has been booked on charges of attempting to use a car illegally. Okay, so can you walk us through what happened exactly? Sure. On November 25th of last year, the 20-something man is accused of entering the driver's side of an SUV belonging to a man in his 30s in the Songdo area of Incheon at around 6.40 p.m. The father of the child, who was also the driver of the car, was outside of the vehicle at the time. And it was found that the driver had to physically fight with the man to remove him from the vehicle. As I said, his daughter was in the car alone at the time. 
It sounds like a terrifying situation for both the father and his daughter. Mm -hmm. During an interview with a local news outlet, the driver said it suddenly happened after he got got out of his car to give candy to his daughter. The father also said that he injured his wrist, waist and knee during the altercation and was told at the hospital that it would take eight weeks of treatment to heal. He added that his daughter was traumatized and diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. So did the police find out the reason for this man's actions? According to the police, the man said he got in the wrong vehicle by mistake, thinking that it was his friend's car. A police official said they'll be looking into the CCTV footage and confirm the man's allegations by looking at the evidence. The father argued that the man should get punished for a bodily injury resulting from robbery. The case will be sent to the uh, prosecution soon. Yes, it's a rather bizarre explanation, considering how it escalated to such physical violence. Uh, We'll perhaps need to wait to learn more about the case once it goes to court. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to our last story. Uh, Can you tell us more? Right. The search for a new coach to lead the South Korean men's national football team continues. And there are rumors circulating that the Taeguk Warriors looking to choose another coach from overseas. Mm. During a press conference on the 11th, the new head of the national team committee for the Korea Football Association, Michael Mueller, who will oversee the appointment process, said that he will think internationally and leave all possibilities open. After the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, rumors swirled that the KFA was considering a domestic coach as the next person for the job. But with Mueller's recent appointment as the head of the committee, there's some forecast that a foreign coach will be chosen. Right. The team is without a head coach, of course, after the Portuguese coach, Paulo Bento, left the role at the end of the World Cup after successfully taking them to the knockout stages for the first time in Mm -hmm. 12 years. So are there any names being brought up as potential candidates already? Yes. In the football scene, former German national team manager Rürgen Klinsmann and former Leeds United manager Marcelo Bielsla are mentioned as possible candidates. Uh, Klinsmann is from Germany, the same country as the committee's head Mueller. And coach Bielsla's name has been mentioned several times as a potential target in the past. And there's a lot of pressure on bringing in a proven leader who will continue the legacy Bento created over the past four years, such as, like you said, as, as advancing to the round of 16 at the 2022 Qatar World Cup. Yes, for those who know football, Klinsman and Bielsa are both very high-profile and exciting names. However, the problem with attracting big names is big budgets, right? Right. The problem is the budget. The salaries of aforementioned candidates are immense. Klinsman received an annual salary of 3 million euros, which is about 3.3 million US dollars, while coaching the German national team. And coach Bielsa's salary is even higher. The annual salary he received from Leeds United was 8 million Great Great British pounds, approximately 9.7 million US dollars. So these numbers a big jump compared to the amount Bento was getting, which was $1.35 million. So we'll have to wait and see how the committee will decide on who will be the new boss of Taeguk Warriors. The KFA has said that its objective is to name someone to take over as head coach by February. Right, I think it's uh, still early and it's uh, very welcome to hear such names, but it sounds like it could be a bit of a stretch. I think uh, we just have to wait a bit longer until we get more concrete list of candidates uh, before Crin fans get their hopes up too high too soon. Okay, that's where we'll leave it for today's Korea Trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you next time. I'll see you next week.
We've come to our weekly segment now, Explore Korea, where we journey across the peninsula, discovering more about the country's history, culture and travel highlights. And joining us this week, it's our explorer, Alison Needles, from the Korean historical travel website, Pinpoint Korea. Ali, hello. It's uh, good to talk to you again. Thank you so much. You too. Now, with the new year, whether you're a tourist in Korea or have been living here for a while, you might be looking for exciting new destinations to explore the country. And with that in mind, Ali, I understand that you're going to introduce us to two possibly lesser-known markets today, right? Can you take it away for us? Yeah, it's interesting. I guess you can say they're lesser-known maybe to tourists, but they're very well-known to locals and Koreans. And the first one I want to talk about is the Seoul Central Market. It's known in Korean as Seoul Jungang Shijang. And this is actually one of six considered traditional markets um, Mm. in the capital city. And it's actually one of the three largest markets that has appeared since the Korean War has finished. And what's so special about the Seoul Central Market is that it's not just one giant space, but it's a bunch of tiny pressed together alleyways. And all of them are filled with incredibly delicious foods, (laughs) some of which people may be very unfamiliar with. I Mm. remember the first time I went um, during my first visit to Korea, the smells were so strong and so different. I had no idea what the food was. Um, And that's because they have a massive range of foods. So you can get different kinds of seafood there. You can get all different kinds of um, prepackaged side dishes that you can take home. And of course, they also have some traditional desserts. And what makes this place so popular among locals in particular is that the prices are really, really fair. And you get a lot of fresh, organic food uh, for a very cheap price. But it's not the only thing that you can find here. You'll also find people coming to shop for home goods and furniture. And if you go along the outskirts of the market, you can even find some kitchenware. Right. It sounds like a very colourful market, one where (laughs) you can especially uh, explore to uh, get new experiences, especially for your taste buds, I guess, for those who are brave enough. Uh, (laughs) It sounds like it is also a market that's... uh, More for locals, as you suggested, rather than one for tourists or foreign visitors. Am I right there? What kind of crowds can one typically find at the Seoul Central Market? Yeah, crowds tend to get pretty lively here every day, particularly from the afternoon to the early evening. Um, And in that sense, it is very local, so it might not be considered typically tourist-friendly, but it has really awesome local vibes and authenticity And most of the people who go there, almost everyone you'll see are middle-aged to older people, local Koreans. They just bring all their friends there, their coworkers there, nothing fancy. They sit on plastic tables and chairs, and you'll see people starting to drink soju and have, you know, Korean meats from the middle of the day. So don't be, you know, afraid of walking into something unwelcoming, because even though it's very local, everyone's so friendly and there's such a positive atmosphere. Sure. It sounds like you can get a real Korean, uh, authentic Korean atmosphere there, uh, unlike the typical, perhaps, uh, tourist traps that uh, some people might fall into. Uh, right. But from what I now understand that while it is a traditional market dating back to the 1960s, visitors will also be able to find uh, uh, new hip restaurants and bars and cafes uh, that have been popping up in recent years as well in the corners uh, of the market. So there's quite a range of places to discover as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially, you know, as the rent prices grow up, a lot of 
artisan cafe owners or people who are interested in opening up their own small restaurants. They're looking for kind of older buildings with cheaper rent prices. So a lot of these areas are new hot places or hit places for younger Koreans who are starting a business and for those who are looking to explore new areas of the city. Indeed. And with that in mind, then, what's the best way to reach the market? The best way to get there is from Shindong Station on the subway. You can go directly out of exit 11, and it's only a 10-minute walk away uh, straight ahead. It's open every day from 7 a.m. until midnight, but it is closed on the third Sunday of every month. Okay, and that's not the only famous market in the area, I understand. Another uh, better-known destination is the Huangdong Flea Market, which is where we are heading next, our second stop today. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited to talk about this place, the Huang Hantong Flea Market, because it's, well, not only is the history interesting, but it's also, for me, one of the most interesting places in the city. Mm. The name itself is based on the way merchants traveled from one place to another, collecting rare items in particular. So at one point, this market was specifically an antique market, and it only sold very rare and valuable items. And Later on, in Changangpian Street, uh, that area, they had a kind of specific art antique street. Mm. So that forced a lot of the stalls that were selling antiques in the Huangangtong flea market to close down or relocate. So there was a short period of time in between where it was mostly cheap, kind of tacky, used items and general goods. But today, it's kind of gone back to its original roots, and it's become this really fascinating blend of both antiques and kind of knickknacks. <laughs> uh, I, I love a good flea market generally and exploring <laughs> uh, past treasures and unique items. Uh, so tell us a bit more about what exactly visitors can expect to see here. Well, I'll warn anybody because it is a sensory overload. <laughs> it is very extensive. It has over 500 different stalls. And they sell pretty much everything and anything you can imagine. There are old cameras. You can buy home appliances like refrigerators there. Of course, antiques from the Korean dynasties. You can buy a lot of war memorabilia from both American and Korean soldiers. They're also very well known for their old currency. And that's predominantly in the antique alley. There's another alley for electronics. And there's another alley for machinery and tools. So depending on where you want to go or what mm. you want to shop for, they'll have different sections for it, but they're almost certain to have whatever you need <laughs> or want. And the best part is, is that it's open every single day from 8 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. And anyone who's very familiar with Korean pop culture has probably seen this flea market before. It's made a lot of appearances on reality shows like the challenge show Running Man because of how crowded and crazy <laughs> it is. It's hard to find things in there. Um, and another name you might hear it be called by is Dokkebi Market. And Dokkebi in English translates loosely to goblin. And legend comes from the Korean legend of goblins that are known for taking kind of run-down broken items and making them new again. So I personally like this name a little better. It makes it easier to remember, and it reminds me of just exactly what the flea market has for sale. Sure. I think for uh, foreign visitors as well, it's particularly in interesting to uh, check this sort of place out because uh, it gives you a little glimpse into the recent past of Korean history as well, as well right? Looking Absolutely. at all these uh, old items uh, that people have collected over the years. Absolutely. And the people who work there have amazing stories if you can speak some Korean. And they're always excited to have foreigners come and ask them about their items.
Sure, I'm sure there'll be uh, plenty there that uh, people uh, won't be able to find anywhere else. Items that no. <laughs> unique to Korea as well. Okay. Absolutely. So, how can visitors get there? Well, very conveniently, it is right uh, next to the Seoul Central Market. So you can do both markets in one day, leaving from Shinmung Station, the same exit, exit 11. However, the flea market is only 50 meters away. Just come right out of the exit and turn right. So I hope you guys have a, a chance to visit both of these markets. And I think... You might find that it will take you two days because there's just so much to see and do in both of these places. <laughs> Indeed. So two traditional Korean markets, great locations to look for unique gifts, delicious food and warm atmosphere to better enjoy the winter season, I feel. OK, Absolutely. Ali, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for telling us about those markets and all they have to offer. And uh, we'll talk to you again next time. Thank you so much. Have a great trip, everyone. Hello, this is Tiger JK of Drunken Tiger. You're now listening to Korea 24. It's time for our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, has joined us in the studio now. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. So what's the first article that you have for us today? Well, it's about quite a unique project, and it comes from Kim Hae-yeun's article in the Life and Style section of the Korea Herald. A 1,300-year-old rock-carved Buddha statue located in Gyeongju City will be put upright within the next two years. The statue is currently face down and is only five centimetres away from a giant rock. Wow, so an ancient Buddha statue yes. is uh, lying face down. It's being put upright. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about this project then? Well, the Joge Order of Korean Buddhism announced the restoration project yesterday. Let me give you a bit of the statue's recent history. Mm. It was discovered in 2007 by the Gyeongju National Research Institute of Cultural Heritage. They were investigating the surrounding area of Yolamgok Temple and just happened to come across the statue. <laughs> it is believed that a 6.4 magnitude earthquake that hit the region in the year 1430 caused the statue to fall over. Wow, so it's over a thousand years old, but it was only discovered recently in 2007. It's yes. fascinating. Uh, you mentioned the project will finish in the next few years. Do we uh, know when exactly? It is expected to be completed by 2025. The article mentions that the Cultural Heritage Administration and Gyeongju City will be in charge of the restoration plan, and studies on how to preserve and manage the statue are expected to be finished this summer. OK, but why will it take three years to move uh, this statue? It seems a bit long. Well, a city official has said that there is no precedent of moving a relic that weighs over 80 metric tons. So it seems like they need to do a lot of planning before moving the statue. Right, so it's quite a massive statue then. It is. I see, OK. So first, a simulation using a model of the same size will be carried out next year. One thing to note is that minor cracks have been found in the statue, so that needs to be taken into account as well. Another consideration is that the, cid the city did suffer an earthquake in 2016. So when moving the statue, they will need to make sure that it is set up in a place that is safe against natural disasters. Yes, so it doesn't topple over again, exactly. essentially. It looks like they'll have to be very careful uh, with this uh, precious cargo. Hopefully not too fragile, but it sounds like a, an interesting project uh, that uh, they will be undertaking. OK, let's move on to the next story. What else do you have for us today? 
Next, Park Hansol sat down with photographer Che Won Jung to talk about his work that focuses on the lives of African people living in South Korea. I did not know this, but apparently towns with a large percentage of African people started to emerge in the early 2000s in Paju, Dong Tu Chan and Songtan. Okay, so African communities in Paju, yes. uh, north of Seoul. Uh, so what does the photographer then say about his work? There is so much information in the article, so I could only pick out a couple of parts. So Che said they noticed some interesting things while documenting people's lives. First, the photographer noticed through his work that many labourers are not able to experience Korean culture because of their harsh working conditions. The article says that because they work in rotating shifts, many of them have just enough time on the weekends to participate in communal cultural events to blow off steam. So instead of being able to learn a new culture, people are only surrounded by those who have similar cultures to them. Wow, okay, so that's quite sad to hear on one level. Uh, What else does Che say about these communities? Che said, I would hear kids speaking in Korean with each other about their father or mother who have no idea what was going on. (laughs) He added that they would switch to English when talking to the parents. Another interesting difference between the older and younger generations in these communities was about food. The first generation immigrant workers would try to only cook the traditional food of their home countries, but many of the children the photographer met seemed to prefer Korean food. As I mentioned earlier, there is so much to read about in the article and pictures of these communities are also included. Wow, that sounds like a fascinating insight into perhaps an overlooked society in Korea. Mm. Uh, That is in tomorrow's Korea Times. So that's definitely one to check out, I feel. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's what we leave it for today. Uh, Do join us again tomorrow to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho, and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for tuning in to KBS World Radio. KBS World Radio is Korea's flagship international broadcaster airing in 11 languages. The English service of KBS World Radio broadcasts news, music shows and more on various platforms including shortwave radio, satellite radio and online. Visit our website at world.kbs.co.kr where you can find the latest news and stream all of our content. We are also available on mobile. To listen to our 24-hour service or our programs wherever you are, download the KBS Kong app or KBS World Radio on-air app onto your smartphone. We also want to hear from you. Visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash English KBS and email us at english at kbs.co.kr to let us know your thoughts. Thank you. KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow in case of high levels of fine dust.
Before going outside, check the air quality by visiting online resources or checking your local weather forecast. When the level of fine dust is high, avoid outdoor activities such as hiking, biking or field sports. Wear protective gear such as masks, glasses and hats. Close your windows, doors and dry your laundry inside. Wash your face often and make sure to also blow your nose regularly. If you have to leave your home, try to use public transportation in order to reduce air pollution. Take a shower after returning home to avoid skin irritation and rinse your sinuses if possible. Before preparing food, wash your hands and make sure to wash fruit and vegetables thoroughly before eating them. Please check our website at world.kbs.co.kr for up-to-date information and procedures. KBS World Radio.